Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about player psychology, but more specifically, we're talking about how gamers learn, how they pick up your rules, how they figure them out. We're talking to Jason Perez, a, a psychotherapist, a guy that he's a gamer, he's a podcast, he runs the Every Night is Game Night podcast. He knows what he's talking about. And I'm excited to, to have you on the show, Jason. Welcome. Knows what I'm talking about. That's high praise, sir. Well, I hope so. You know more than me. I know that. You at least have like a professional degree and all that that says you know about you know how people's brains work. And That's so, right. Yep. Like I know uh, how yeah. mine works, which is not always the best, but I have no idea how other people's brains work. That's probably why sometimes I run into issues. And my wife's in the room <laughs> over there, so we won't talk about some of the issues I've run into. Not understanding how people work. But okay. I love you. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so if y'all get into a little bit of a tiff, I can help out. I can just... I'll give you my rates. I'll Skype yeah, that right. into you. And <laughs> that's right. Well, I'm glad I'm not. You're not charging me the the normal hourly rate for this show. But uh, I am really excited to kind of learn about what all goes on in a person's brain when they're trying to figure out a game. But let's let's get your bio. Let's get your background. How'd you get into games? How'd you get into therapy? All that good stuff. Okay, cool. So um, I started with games. My first first game, uh, besides like the Hasbro stuff, was D and D. So I played I played D and D when I was a kid. Uh, junior high school, high school, second edition, third edition, all that stuff. Didn't really get into board games. Didn't find any board games that were, quite frankly, good. I think the best board game I played when I was a kid was like Nightmare, which is a horrific game. <laughs> <laughs> Fun as heck, but yeah. ironically really called Nightmare. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, I didn't really. Dis- I actually discovered modern board games through D and D. I was at a, a Winterfest of theirs, and they had Lords of Waterdeep demoed. So this is before it came out. And it's like, oh, yeah, here's a board game of D&D. Oh, man, we're going to kill monsters. We're going to uh, trade <laughs> cubes, <laughs> orange cubes for blue cubes. What's going on here? Right. Uh, but it was cool, and it was interesting. It kind of opened my mind. And then from there, I got into a pandemic, and that it was over. Yeah. Like, I'm a big thematic gamer. I'm a big cooperative gamer. I believe in stories. Uh, I believe in, you know, working together. So I'm a, th- I'm a therapist. I started my professional career as a teacher. So I've always been in social service in some capacity. Uh, so I got into the therapy thing, just, you know, I was kind of good at it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so it's funny because, you know, all this is kind of happening at once. So, um, you know, as I'm getting into therapy, I'm starting to see the links between the games that I'm learning about and possibilities for, you know, helping out in therapy. So I think we're going to talk about that in the bonus round. Yeah, I'm excited to kind of learn your thoughts on games and, and therapy and using those. It's, it's just a really cool idea to me that, again, I got no idea about. And so I'm excited to get to that later. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, right so, now we're talking about like learning styles. And so right. tell me about that. Like, give me a good description like if I was just going to walk up to somebody on the street and talk about like board game and learning styles, like what would be the quick summary of what I'd be talking about? Okay. So a learning style. So let me tell you, I think it probably a better example to tell you what it's not Okay. <laughs> or, or like what the bad definition is. So I think when people think of learning, they think of school Okay. and when they think of school, they think of the teacher writing stuff on the board putting, you know, giving it uh, the information out and then the students are all kind of sitting there learning. So like what is a what is 
there to talk about in terms of learning style. It's like, okay, everybody kind of learns the same way, so it's not different. At least that's kind of a popular conception. So the reason why I got in touch with you was because there was a thread that kind of really hit that for me. So I was a teacher, and I've always kind of criticized that, and I my antenna are up whenever I see people make that assumption about learning styles, that it's just about here, have some information. Um, so this thread, if you, I hope you don't mind if I go into that. No, absolutely. Go for it, man. And we're talking about Board Game Geek, uh, a thread on Board Game Geek. Yes, this yeah. is a thread on Board Game Geek. This is from Chatty Boy and the General Gaming. This is about a know, month or two ago. Uh, the title of the thread is Why Are Rules Seemingly So Hard to Understand? So it's kind of like, you know, he's a teacher, but he finds that he has to repeat himself and people skip rules and it's just really hard to teach rules. So then uh, I'm quoting here. When I see rules questions in the game forums, almost every time I can just answer it by copying, pasting the relevant sentence or paragraph from the rule book. Do people not read? Do people have a hard time understanding? And it's just kind of this, you know, um, like he's pretty cool about it. Like he says, I'm just curious. I'm not really mad about it. But you could tell like some of the other commenters were like, oh, my God, you're so right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, uh, so then my thing was, OK, it's operating on a really basic fallacy. So it's that, that idea that like, I guess the best way to put it is it's funny that you're in Honduras, you're really close to where this guy was doing this thing. But I, um, when I was teaching, I learned about this, uh, educational theorist called Paulo Freire, Brazilian guy. Okay. And he came up with this idea of the banking system of education and the banking system says the, that says that the students are the receptacles and the teachers are the depositors. Mm -hmm. So when teachers teach they're taking all the information and they're depositing it into their students like a bank and then the students are just kind of like moving it around and protecting it or whatever it is but they're not really doing anything they're just kind of passively receiving and i think that's what people think that education is and that is so wrong yeah. <laughs> i can't even say how wrong that is so like when people like okay i want to i want to know what a rule is and you just copy paste it here have the rule and they give you that little like um, you know, how, you know, how could you have missed that kind of, you know, thing? It just, it just gets my goat because it's assuming that we're receptacles and that's just not true. Yeah, so I don't it's know. It's assuming if, everybody's the same. Like everyone experiences information the exact same way. So why can't everyone understand it? Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, I guess rule books, I mean, uh, I mean, I know there's like exceptions, but like for the most part, a, a rule book is almost like that by design. Like it's a, a bunch of information. Yeah. And especially when you get like the, you know, a, the wrong teacher at a game table, it's like, okay, here are the rules. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pouring it onto the table. Here you go. Turn one, go. And I mean, I don't know if you've had any experience with that or anything like that. Yeah. Well, well with me, like I know, like I don't do well with rule books. Like my brain, I think what happens is my brain processes things faster than I am like actually reading it. And so my brain like fills in the gaps because I haven't gotten to that information yet. And then I end up with like these like false ideas about what to do in a game because my brain, I don't know. It's weird, man. Like I don't, like I have to watch how to play videos. Like I love Rodney Smith. I love going on and like watching Dice Star reviews and stuff to like really understand like how to play a game visually and someone talking to me and showing me the card and all that, all that. Because when I, when I see just like giant blocks of text in a rule book, 
I don't know, man. It just doesn't hit me the way that it should for me to like really be able to grasp a game. And so mm-hmm. I'm not, if I have to teach from a rule book, like I'm not the guy to do it. Like I'm not your guy. Like if I get to watch a video first, okay, then, then we'll probably be okay. But if I'm having to teach out of a rule book, man, it's, it's not for me. And that is, that is not weird. <laughs> <laughs> I will explain a lot about exactly where that's coming from as we go d- through the episode. Awesome. Uh, okay. There you go. There is, there are reasons. Yes. Uh, the brain is not a huge, well, it is a huge mystery, but there's a little bit that we know. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I think when you, so the, to your original question, what is a learning style? So there's a lot of ways in which we ingest information. It isn't just this banking system where we're just, you know, uh, receptacles that are, you know, happily, you know, taking in the knowledge from the divine or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that happens in the way that the brain is kind of like, it. you have to kind of work within how it works. So just this, that's what this episode is all about, kind of giving some tips and clues on how, what's going on in there and how rule books and how teachers can kind of accommodate for that. Yeah. So there's two things. The second one I'll get to, which is personality. But the first one I kind of have to get out of the way because it's really important. Um, this is a, we're playing games here. Yeah. And we're not, this isn't life and death. <laughs> so <laughs> I know some people kind of take it like, oh my God, this is a game and you know, I love this game so much. And But chances are at the table, um, you're, you're, running into players who are kind of in a powered down state because it is, it's their relaxation. Yeah. And we actually have a, a psychobabble word for that. So any uh, uh, Freudian scholars out in your listenership, will, will, uh, will their ears are going to perk with this one. So it's an adaptive regression in service of the ego. Adaptive regression in service of the ego. Adaptive regression okay. in the service of, of the ego. That is ARISE is the acronym. Yeah. So I'll break that down. Okay. So the ego, I think in popular culture, the ego is is understood to be pride. Mm-hmm. Like you have a big ego, you have a puffed up ego. That's not how we understand it as psychotherapists. Um, we just think of our ego as our thinking, okay. our executive functioning, our making judgments, solving problems, remembering, prioritizing, recalling consequences, going to work, paying bills, <laughs> boring stuff, really high energy and really high anxiety if you just let that go. So like if you're always prioritizing, always solving problems, always using your ego, you're going to fry. Mm. So we have defense mechanisms to kind of take us away from that for a little while and help us kind of recharge. So regression is one of them. So you've got the ego part. Now we have the regression part. So regression you can understand in two ways. One is we become kids. Like we regress like into be- being kids. Yeah. So, you know, like games obviously are kid toys, like they're toys. And that's why we pop whenever we get like a, a, a game with beautiful components mm-hmm. or, um, you know, all that stuff. So like it's, I guess the point there is not just that these these are toys and, you know, as a dismissive thing, like it's really doing something. Like to engage with a game is really like feeding that regression and feeding our kind of backup state. So if that's the best way to put it, like we're in a backup state. Yeah. Now, does does, that make sense? Yeah, but does that also kind of have some nostalgia in there too? Like this reminds me of when I was a kid and like it brings back those feelings. Like if I play a game about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like I loved the Ninja Turtles back in the day. And so playing a game like that kind of brings back some things as well? Uh, Yes and. So like I think there's that, but in a literal sense, we are regressing into our kid state. It's not just uh, we're still adults recalling a kid state. Like we we are on some level – Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's one aspect to it. The other part is just kind of a, from a cognitive perspective, it's just kind of like a general powering down. 
So where, you know, all that executive functioning, especially like memory. Mm. So memory really works hard. And when we're in that kind of mode of being in games, like we have, we're in backup mode. We're not remembering yeah. as well. We're not processing as well. Like, I don't know if you've, I, another thing that I've done in my life is I've been a tour guide. Okay. And that is one of the most frustrating jobs ever because all of those tourists have their brains off. Yeah. They are not, <laughs> they are not with you. So I would get people coming up to me when I was a tour guide. I used to tour for Ground Zero when it was like 2004 or five. Mm -hmm. And like people come up to me, it's like, uh, how much is the free walking tour? <laughs> Dude. <laughs> how long is the walk to Liberty Island? So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and I, and as, as frustrating as it is, like I have to remind myself, like these people are on vacation. Right. Like they're not bringing their A game. So, you know, in terms of like cognition yeah. and memory and all that kind of stuff. So I think maybe games aren't that bad, but in some way they are kind of thing. Like when you're playing a game, you're at this kind of lower level, you know, development wise, like, you know, you kind of bring in it, you're bringing up a little bit of that kid stuff going on. And you're also cognitive. It's like, okay, we're taking a break. Yeah. So when people get really mad, like, why can't you learn this game? <laughs> That's one part of it. Yeah. Right. This also explains why I hate real time games. I hate, yes. I hate them. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to make a decision right now. I want to, I want to wait a moment and I want to look at things and then I'll make a decision. And so this, right. this, okay, this is not just something wrong with me. This is actually, okay, all right, good. I'm learning exactly. all sorts of things about myself tonight. It's good. <laughs> there is, no, there is not. This is, this is, I, that's part of the job as a therapist is like just helping people accept who they are. Yeah. And, you know, as gamers, we need to accept the fact that, hey, we're not going to learn these rules that well. We have to like uh, accommodate what our brains are doing when we're playing games. We can't just like force it. So like, I think people make that mistake of like, sometimes there's games that are really complicated. Mm. So, you know, an 18xx game or a splatter game or, and they expect it's like, oh yeah, you know, um, even games that are even like a Lords of Waterdeep, which is kind of a mid-weight game, maybe a light middle kind of thing. Like, I think people expect that like, oh, you're really smart. You'll get this. Mm -hmm. it's like, well, <laughs> You know, uh, not really. You're gonna have to walk me through this a little bit because I'm I'm doing the adaptive regression thing. Yeah. So there's maladaptive regression, which we're not gonna go off, which is like bad tantruming and being a total kid. But yeah, adaptive is fine. Okay. So we're not talking flipping the table tonight. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> okay. Cool. So, so that's number. So that's number one. I'm gonna let that hang over there. Yeah. Like I don't even know what to do with that, man. Like, well, let's let's talk about like, and maybe we can get into this more. Obviously, more in a little bit, but. Help me understand what I need to do as a game designer to really grasp what you're saying right now. And so I can not just help people understand my game, but really accommodate them in such a way that the rule book is maybe not a joy to learn, but at least something that's not a frustration. Because I feel like that's what happens a lot of times. People are frustrated before the game even starts. Like you, you start your game behind the eight ball because like somebody has just spent so much time trying to get the rule book across to the table, trying to figure all this stuff. So what, what can I do as a game designer to really accommodate these concepts? Okay. So um, let me get into the second part of my spiel. And then, because the first part is just an accommodation. It's, it's more like a, a, a flag to teachers and a little bit of a flag to rules writers. Like, be kind. Like, don't put a whole bunch of nece unnecessary jargon in there. Yeah. But teachers, like, you know, if somebody's not getting it, if somebody's missing rules, it's like, look, they're, this is a vacation thing. Like, let's just, you know, work with this. So that's kind of a thing to hang on the side. Um, let's really get into the second part, which is the personality stuff. And okay. then I think... I can give a lot of uh, advice or, you know, 
suggestions because I'm not like a, a, a researcher, like I'm a psychotherapist, I practice. Yeah. And this is stuff that I get from working. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's stuff that I think works. So let me get into the personality stuff and then we'll get uh, answer your question. Okay. And then, uh, all right, good so, question though. Yeah, no, and I'm excited to come back to that. But another quick thing I was thinking about, so I'm a teacher uh, right now in Honduras. I teach English, I teach literature and British literature to 10th grade and 12th grade students here at this school in Honduras. And it's funny, like what you're talking about, like when people are on vacation, they turn their brains off. I feel like when kids walk into my classroom, they do the same thing. <laughs> it's like, guys, like I'm, oh, it's babe. <laughs> yeah, it's like, come on. Now. Like, we, for instance, we were doing this busy, uh, big essay project a couple weeks ago and I told them very specifically, like where they, were, they had to write an essay about an he- a hero and it had to be somebody that they could prove was a hero that had books written about him, like somebody that was a famous hero. Like it couldn't just be your mom or cousin Ray Ray. Like it had to be somebody for real. And I told him, if you're going to use an athlete, it can't, he can't be or she can't be an a-, uh, a hero because they won a game. Like, that doesn't make you a hero. Winning a championship is not heroic. That's just playing a game. And I said that ten times because these guys are all into soccer, man. They love, they love Messi and Ronaldinho. Like, all these guys, Ronaldo, all those guys, they love them. And they kept asking me, can I do, can I do a soccer player? And I was like, yes, but it can't be about their on-the-field accomplishments has to be something they've done mm-hmm. off the field, to overcome some adversity, to do something cool for the world, help people, whatever. Yeah, they can be your hero. I don't care that they won the Premier League championship. Don't care, right? So we get into the final thing. The final thing, they had to do a presentation to the class before they turned in their essay. And I have a student get up there and talk the entire time about Neymar Jr. and how he's a hero to him because he had this big comeback win in this game when they had no chance. And I'm sitting at my desk writing like the the grade for his presentation. I'm just like, you have got to be kidding me. Like I said this <laughs> 10 times. I sent it in an email. I, I handed you a, like I gave you everything. And then he gets up there and he does exactly what I told him not to do. And it's like, okay, well, why, and why is this? And I feel like so often people are in the same predicament at, at the table because people mm-hmm. are coming in. It's 10 o'clock at night. They've been working all day. You know, their kids have been freaking out. They had probably maybe hadn't slept well, whatever. Maybe they're at a convention, and this is like hour 14 of straight gaming, you know. And so just trying to figure out how to deal with people to get that information across in a way that they hear it, process it, understand it, and then can, like, act it out. And so yeah, I'm excited to, like, learn some things tonight that maybe can help me in my classroom because okay. my buddy Abner, that's his, that's his kid's name, is like, he ain't getting it. He didn't understand mm-hmm. it. And so uh, it's good. That, okay, maybe it's not his fault. Like, what can I do to help him? <laughs> right? right. <laughs> okay, so what you're talking about is, um, well, okay, let, actually, you know what? Let me just go into the spiel, and then it'll all kind of make sense. Okay. I know this is frustrating for listeners. They're like, oh, you just, just say it. I'm like, no, I have an orderly. Yeah, build it up, man. Do what you got to do. I'm just throwing, there you go. throwing stuff at you. Do what you got to do. Cool. So, um, so I want to talk about, personality okay. and there's a lot of different definitions of personality it's kind of this slippery fish it's hard to grasp but when i'm talking about it i'm talking about it in the way kind of popular uh, idea of it which are these you know this idea of like okay who are you and how do you interact with the world and there's a lot of different ways of thinking about it so like you're going to hear a lot about you know personality types type a type b yeah. or um you know the enneagram or whatever all these things and then uh so the one that i use i don't know that it's the best uh thing so because it's a little bit on um, inaccurate you know they're all these all suck but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but for the most part, you know, you, you go with the one that's most useful to you as far as as far as it goes uh, is the Myers Briggs. So the Myers Briggs personality test. I bet that anybody who's worked in like a corporate office has taken one of these, yep. or um, you know, any kind of team building function. It's like, oh, I'm a INTF or whatever it is. Uh, so the Myers Briggs uh, developed in the 1950s, based on psychologist Carl Jung. A lot of people have heard of Carl Jung. Uh, so this is kind of like a descendant of his ideas. Um, so then he talks about personality as these four different uh, typologies. So there's personality in terms of how you deal with people, which is in an introverted or extroverted way, so uh, polls. Uh, there's differences in how you gather information from the world. So you either use your senses or you use your intuition, which is kind of like an more inner process. How you make decisions, which is your, uh, you're either logical or you do it based off of kind of emotion and relationships, so that dyad. And then there's your approach to life in general, which is you know, are you a judgmental person, you, you make decisions quickly, or do you just kind of go with the flow? Yeah. So a lot of that's an info dump right there. I'm going to focus on the second one because that's what's important to teaching, is that sensing versus intuition, okay. right? So um, I'm still thinking of little Abner. So I'm going to try to relate it to a little uh, Abner. Was that his name? Abner, yeah. And you say there little. You he's 17 or 18 years. He's a grown man, Jason. He's a grown <laughs> man. <laughs> he's a 12th grader. I got no excuses here. But anyway, yeah, little Abner. He's taller than I am. But anyway, to me. <laughs> Okay, so I'll bring it back to a little Abner whenever I can. Okay. Uh, okay, so sensing versus intuition. So well, like I said, like, okay, there's different ways in which we gather data from the world. Uh, and there's the two kind of broad ways that we get into it. So sensing is the process of gathering information through the five senses, whatever you can touch, you can feel, uh, all that, all that stuff. So the thing about sensors, like people who use their senses, is like there's less of a connection to the words and symbols. So you can throw all of the words and symbols at like a like someone who's really a hard sensor. You could throw all the words at them like as much as you can, but they won't get it until it's somehow access to their five senses immediately. Okay. Right. So if there was a way to like take I mean, I'm just assuming that I mean, like, you know, as a hypothetical, if he's like a sensor, uh, little Abner over there, a big Abner, yeah. <laughs> grown man Grown Abner man. with a beard or whatever. <laughs> uh, if there was a way to get him, uh, like if he was an, uh, a sensor, you'd have to give him the information in a way that just makes it real for him. So it's like having him having, uh, what was the soccer player's name? Namor. Okay, like if you brought him into the room, that person, I'm sure he's a $10 million soccer player, you'll never, that'll never happen. Right. But if you brought him into the room and you said to him, this is not a hero, yeah. that would have been, done the job a little bit better than the email and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of one way to do it. I don't like not knowing him, but that's kind of what we're talking about. Like having something in 3D, basically. 3D that is completely and utterly linked to the actual thing. So it can't just be like a poster of him. Mm -hmm. It has to be him. Yeah, <laughs> or something that you know um, is he he relates to emotionally, so, you know, just kind of assuming this. Now he's a hypothetical Abner yeah. is a sensor sensing learner. So, and it, when it comes to games, when you're talking to sensing learners, they're they they need the like they need or they need the the watch and play videos. Mm -hmm. They need the to have their hands on the game. They need to you know play with the pieces and do a first round mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So like that's. It's it's pretty it's pretty uh, unfortunate <laughs> when you get 
uh, like a whole table full of that. So it's like, unless they're cool with like just, you know, throwing away our first game, which I think you should be, you know, just throw away your first game and go mm-hmm. at the second. But a lot of times people aren't that. We could talk about that too later. Yeah. Uh, so that's the sensors. So the intuitives are also frustrating, but in their own way. And what you described before in terms of making these mental leaps, mm-hmm. that's more of an intuitive thing. So then as an intuitive, you grasp like symbology and words a little bit better. But what you what it's intuitive does is they take whatever they get little bits of knowledge and then they make leaps mm-hmm. like they, they automatically leap five steps ahead to the next thing. And because for an intuitive, there's like a whole lot going on, like under the hood. And, you know, so like whenever we learn and this kind of goes back to the whole thing about we're not banks, like we have a whole base of prior knowledge and an intuitive wants to use it. Mm-hmm. Like we want to recall all of our prior knowledge, all of our assumptions. We want to play with all this stuff that we've had. It's like, you know, we don't just start over as learners. We approach each individual game. So let's say you're going into a teach, it's a work replacement game and I'm teaching viticulture. So step one, step two, it's like, oh, that's a work replacement. I remember Lords of Waterdeep. I remember this. I remember that. And now you've leapt to this thing, which is the teacher's like, uh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes yes, like when it's and when it's a yes, it's a great thing, and that's why we love intuitives because they make our jobs easier. They make you know, um, like if you give an intuitive a job and they just you don't have to like give that give them like step by step directions for a sense you do for intuitive you don't and they can leap to it and they be like boom done great, you know that that's a that's a productive work or they're able to do their thing, but for in terms of games if they're not landing on where you want them to land then that's what that's what kind of creates the problem. So, I mean so I mean does that make sense? Yeah, no, for real. Like and what an intuitive is? Yeah, for sure. I think and what we were talking about earlier, all right, for instance, when Blood Rage was out on Kickstarter, right? I remember going to the Kickstarter page seeing I saw the picture of the board and the big giant good-looking miniatures on the map and I thought, "Oh, this is a dudes on a map game. I know how those work. I don't really care for it." And then right. a couple of weeks later, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, did you see Blood Rage?" I was like, "Yeah, I don't think it's for me." He's like, "Yeah, it's a drafting game." And I was like, "Wait, what?" It's is what? Is it, there's draft. There's drafting in that game. I like drafting. You know, and all of a sudden, it's like I didn't, because in my head, I just saw what it looked like and assumed, oh, okay, this is what it what it is, and that wasn't the case at all. And so that can be a dangerous thing when you're trying to teach a game to somebody like me who's just going to jump uh, ahead a few steps and and miss like the main part that you needed them to learn. And so, right, yeah, no, I'm I'm tracking with you, man. Yeah, yeah, and I think the thing about the intuitives is like people kind of see that as a bug. Like we shouldn't do that. Like, oh, always be careful and always read. But like the leap ahead isn't a bug. It's a feature. Okay. Like an intuitive has to leap ahead in order to get that learning in. You know, it's like if they don't do that mental work, they're not going to own it. And that's when learning happens. Like that's when, you know, learning happens when it's like, okay, this is mine now. Mm-hmm. So like when you're when, with a sensing learner, they get to that point by playing a lot and by going step by step and by doing it, whatever. Uh, but with an intuitive learner, they have to skip ahead and come at their own way to, you know, formulate all the the data. And if they don't do that, then it's just a bunch of stuff. Yeah. You know. So it's really important, you know. And and people get frustrated with it. And I saw like you know reading in that going back that chatty boy thread, they're like, oh well, did you skip that page? And and like the next three commenters were like, no, 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 we didn't skip, we didn't skip. Yeah, you did. 
<laughs> and it's good. Right. <laughs> you have to do that in order to take ownership of the thing that you're learning. So, you know, and the, the practice is, you know, arriving at the right place. Yeah. So now this will this will probably get a little bit more uh, to uh, Big Abner or whoever he is. <laughs> so, so like, okay, if you could, if you can think of an intuitive as taking whatever sense data, the little bit they're getting, putting it through the grist of all the stuff they already knew and already learned previously mm. and something else comes out. So like, what is that bunch of stuff, right? Assumptions. That's what we're talking about, right? Right. So we always make assumptions. We're gamers, especially the those of us that have been playing it for a long time. We have a whole bunch of stuff. We're not just going to dump it when it comes to, you know, <laughs> learning, uh, when it comes to learning a new game. We're always going to associate it, at least the intuitives of us. And a lot of us, a lot of gamers are feel intuitive, especially the, uh, the teachers mm. of the games, because I mean, it's it, and the designers of the games are tend to be intuitives. The 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 producers and the people getting things done tend to be <laughs> sensors, like they're um, which we'll call it. They're kind of moving things around from A to B. The the creative process is more of an intuitive process. So then that's where you're gonna get some of these pitfalls here. Yeah. So okay. So the assumptions are. I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna quote. Um, there's a in the, later in the thread. Uh, this guy Roger Miller, R Miller, 1093. Uh, he put it really well. He says, as a designer and publisher, let me say the number one problem I get rules question from is assumptions. If most games do something one way and you go another direction, be prepared to explain it multiple times and with an example. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll get questions from people who are reading the rule, but they can't believe it. Right. Per so, okay, um, I can come up with a million examples. One of the most recent ones was a Dice Tower uh, game, the Dice Tower Essentials game called Viral. Mm-hmm. So pretty simple game, you know, air control and da 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 da. And I was doing a thing where I was, I was reading it quickly because the guy just gave it to me. He's like, here, read, learn this and play for people. It's like, oh, oh, uh, okay, which I stink at, but whatever, <laughs> whatever. It's better than not playing. So able to get it, but there's a phase in there which is the event deck phase. And when my assumption was that you put the event deck phase down because that's what you always do for right. an event deck, right? In that game, you put the event deck face up, huh. and there it is in the rule book. Once I went back, <laughs> like uh, we played it, it was it ended up being like a pretty good game, but kind of random. Um, and people were like, oh, that was a little too random for me. Turns out, part of why it was so random was because I put the event deck face down. Mm-hmm. They didn't see what was coming. Right. I looked at it, it's like, oh, I should have put the event deck face up. I made the assumption. I did that partly because I was teaching it faster, partly because that's kind of how I do things. Like I'd make these leaps. Yeah. You know, and that's a simple one, but, and I think like I was able to kind of teach it because I was, a, I, I made a bunch of leaps along the way and say, okay, area control. I didn't read that whole thing. I know what area control is. So then that, that worked out, but that particular thing didn't work out, yeah. you know? So then I looked at it and I look at where it is in the rule book and it's like this, it, it wasn't like it was there, but it wasn't like highlighted. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't separated. It wasn't in a sidebar. It wasn't like, okay, look at this kind of thing i would that would have really helped you know yeah so i so i think like so getting back so i know i this has been a whole 30 minute preamble to getting back to that central question what can a game designer do mm-hmm. um i think don't fight that urge to you know whenever people say oh just read the rules they're fighting people who need to make those intuitive leaps in order to really learn yeah you know so if your game has does things in a, or like a regular expected way, you know, so like another one, a, a friend of mine, 
Uh, shout him out. John Samantha. He's, he's out in California. He's making games right now. He's a cool guy. Uh, he made a game, and part of the game is like a little micro game, and part of the game was discarding, but you discard face down. Mm. So he was like, he found that people were discarding face up, and that was kind of messing up the game. Yeah. <laughs> so he had to like, you know, he ended up putting it on all the cards, and there's, there's ways in which he's going to highlight that. So it's like, you know, there's all sorts of little ways where it's like, okay, if you're going to do something against type, there better be a darn good reason right. for that. It can't just be, you know, your flourish, like my thing. Yeah. Like it has to be um, for a real reason. And when you're communicating that, that's what gets highlighted. Yeah. Not necessarily. Actually, it's more important to highlight deviations from assumptions than key rules, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, for sure. No, I think, yeah, and I think you're dead on. And something I just wrote down in my notes here was highlight things that go against the norm. If you have a, for instance, I've played some deck builders where you didn't, when you, when you ran out of cards, you didn't shuffle, you didn't reshuffle your discard pile. You just turned it over and now you're, you're going to pick up the cards in the same order you discarded. That's super weird. Like you don't do that in 99% <laughs> yeah. of games. And so what I found myself doing is just like without even thinking, because again, my brain is turned off. Like we were talking about earlier, I'd pick up the discard pile, I'd shuffle it and I'd turn it over and be like, Oh, crap. I wasn't supposed to do that. You know? And so, like, that goes against the grain. Like you're saying, if you're going to be, if you're going to do these things, it better make sense. Like there be a, better be a good reason for you to do, do that different thing. And another thing I, we've talked about on the podcast in, in the past, some different uh, guests is don't have too many of these things in one game. Like don't have too many things that, that go against the norm in one game. Like limit that to just one, two, maybe three, but not very many. Cause People, like you're saying, they're going to have all these assumptions, and now they have to reprogram their brain and kind of unlearn what they learned in previous games just for your one game that's totally different for whatever reason. And so just being aware of that as a designer and aware of that as, as a rulebook writer, I think is just pivotal in doing this right. Yeah, and I think um, there's this kind of uh, – going back to the original thing that I talked about where learners are just receptacles yeah. that you know I will teach people how to do this by pouring more into it like let right. me let me say it over and over again it's almost like you know getting back to the situation where like i'm gonna um the abner thing where he's like you know 10 you know you'd say 5 10 20 40 times yeah. like pouring it into it, it, it but you're pouring it into his his assumption mm -hmm. and his very strong assumption like he has grown up 18 years years of his life of knowing the soccer player as a hero right like as an that is his def, de, textbook definition of hero. You are not going to undo eighteen years of training with ten emails. Yeah, right. This is not going to work. So, <laughs> so that that so that's where. Um, so I don't really have like one answer. It's basically understand that process and understand the type of learner that he is. So if he's a sensing learner, then yeah, you know, find ways to kind of communicate the message that are not you know words and whatever it is. Um, if he's like an intuitive learner, then you know there's ways to kind of uh, you know, okay, what are your assumptions on what a hero is and bringing those out? So like maybe an assignment beforehand, like a pre-assignment, okay, tell me who a hero is mm -hmm. and then him getting an assignment back saying, okay, I get this, I get this, I get this. For the next assignment, go a different direction yeah. kind of thing so that uh, you're taking what the assumptions are in there and you're honoring them, you're respecting, you're, you're respecting that process, but then – you know, working from that and go, and then you get, you go in the direction where you want to go. Yeah. And I think like with your example of viral, 
and maybe they did this, I don't know, I haven't played the game, but putting something in the rules that say, normally an event deck goes face down. However, in viral, you put it face up. And it like really, it hits that assumption and says, yes, this is normal, but not in this game. Or, and even on like the, uh, the game setup page of having, you know, the game, the big picture of the game laid out on the table and having that event deck face up and then putting like a big exclamation point next to it and going, this should be face up, you know, but... <laughs> That way, yeah. people that, that learn visually with pictures would go, oh, okay, that. And then people that would learn in other ways would see the, yeah, normally we you do it this way, but not not today, not in this game. And just like hitting mm -hmm. it from different angles, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm going to go into that in just a bit, like awesome. the whole uh, speaking in different languages, yeah. quote unquote. Cool. You, know, um, you know, so visual is a language, artist language, all that kind of stuff. But so I just want to go over a couple of things in terms of this assumption stuff. Yeah. So, um, and just actually hitting what you were saying before on like how to emphasize mm -hmm. there's actually like i don't know like I, again i'm not a rules writer i just kind of know what works i have a sense of what works based on my experience there's like there's actually ways to emphasize that do more harm than good mm -hmm. there like sometimes i'll see a rule book where they'll take a really important point and they'll put it in all caps underline with a big blue banner like Da, da, da. Mm -hmm. <laughs> pay attention to this pay attention to this that's actually like the way the brain works especially nowadays like we're not you actually make certain readers more likely to miss that hmm. because what but first of all it might be like you know because we're used to chapter headings so like it looks like a chapter heading even though it says the word important like the visual cues say chapter heading we never read those so it's like okay skip and whatever um also because like we're in the generation where everything has a banner ad right? and everything has like a, like, you know, YouTube has this and we just like totally shut off our brains to that. We just mentally categorize as garbage and just throw it away. So like you've taken your very important rule that you want people to learn and you've put it in such a way where some of us are more likely to think of it as garbage and throw it away. Wow. So, All right. <laughs> I mean, so like, I mean, that's kind of a technical point. Like I, I'm, and as a, I guess as a, a reader, as a teacher you know, of books, I, I kind of get a little bit like there's conventions to how you highlight stuff in text. Like don't underline in the paragraph. Underlining in a paragraph just does, it, it just muddies the waters. Like if you're going to do something in paragraph, put it in bold. Um, don't italicize important stuff. Like ita italics are only, mostly for like jargony terms and like mm. foreign language terms. They're not for emphasis. So like if you're putting your 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 important text in italics, that's also, you know, unless you're bolded. Bolded is like, okay, this is important. That that, yeah. that works pretty good. Well, usually italics is like for flavor. Yeah, it's for the stuff that doesn't yeah. actually matter. And so you don't even have to read it. And so that's a dangerous thing to use it in a rule book. Right. You yeah. know, so like, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know offhand how many like like actual rule books do, do the italics to emphasize. But like just as an example of because I have seen, you know, people underline stuff in rule books and uh, come on. <laughs> go with assumptions roll with it people you know don't fight uh the the convention like and if you're gonna fight the convention make it you know make it a hill to die on yeah. um as a little bit of a sidebar i don't know if you got a chance to play first martians no i haven't i've seen reviews okay, so and watched a little bit of playthrough but haven't played it yet the reviews are that the rule book is it's a bear you know it's a bear. Yeah. The reason, in my opinion, the reason why the rulebook is a bear, like everything you need to know to, is in that game, uh, is in the rulebook, but that game does a lot of things against assumption mm. for a, a game that like people are looking at it and they're going, like they're seeing it, 
but they don't believe it. It's like, really? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, there's a bunch of examples I can give. So like, I guess one is like, there's a tracker on top. Um, but, and we're used to trackers tracking like essential stuff. Like, okay, we had, this goes up and down every round and all that. In that game, it's more for your reserves. Mm -hmm. So your the, the actual tracking of your main stuff doesn't happen. It's just, you just do it as a mental calculation really quickly. And then as a tracking for your reserve. But people are like, oh, wait a minute, you know, it's supposed to track this. It's supposed to track mm -hmm. that. Are you sure? Are you sure? And that's the that's literally the FAQs. It's like, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> Is the rule book so, correct? Is that right? Yeah. Right. I don't. It, it, well, it's like, and then you know, people do the thing where they blame the rule book, and I think that there's a little bit of. A little bit of the rule book is rough, but I uh, and I can give examples of that. I don't want it to, this to turn into like a what's wrong with that rule book, yeah. but like just to make the point that it's the assumptions that you know when there's uh, that game does a that a few too many things that go against type, and that's people blame the rule book for that. Yeah, you know. So in a way, like you know, writing rule books and making games, like when you make a game, make a game for accessibility. As opposed to like making the game and then making the rule book provide the accessibility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, I guess that's another little kind of nugget, like have the teaching process in mind as you make the game. Yeah. So I don't know what that looks like for y'all game designers, but there you go. <laughs> as a person who plays games, you figure out what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I'm actually going to throw this in for speaking of, you mentioned Rodney Smith. He said something really funny on one of his uh, talk back channels or whatever it was. He said, um, when you when game when game rule books call something familiar by an unfamiliar name, mm -hmm. he pointed out Thunder Alley. So they call a turn a uh, an action segment and a round a turn. So it says a full turn consists of each player making the action segments. Yeah. Uh. Right. You know, just call it call a turn a turn, call a round a round. Right. You know, uh, what is it? Android Netrunner. You have a grip. Uh huh. What the heck is that? Just call it a hand. I mean, right. I know flavor, da, da, da. but when it comes to essential essential stuff, it's like really think hard about mm -hmm. whether your flavor is <laughs> causing more harm than good. Right. Yeah, I think it's yeah. a very dangerous thing when you start trying to inject theme in your rule book. Right. You can do it to a certain extent, but like for instance, you know, I've played some games that had kind of a comic book feel to them, and so the rule books were written in comic book font which is painfully difficult to read because every single letter is capital, right? And like, like why, and you, why would you do this? And so you're, you can make the game much harder to understand just because you're trying to be clever or trying to, trying to start the game before the game has started. Like, let the game speak for itself. Let the game ev evoke the theme. Don't feel like your rule book has to begin that process necessarily. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then, um, you know, from that, like, that, that's the way we take, the two ways in which we take um, information in, and there's pitfalls on both on either direction. So there's things to just kind of be aware of as teachers and as rulebook writers. Um, so then, then there's like what it looks like when it's in there, <laughs> in the brain, and that's where we get into like uh, linguistic styles of learning. Uh, so there's, I think there's five primary types. There's linguistic, which is the reading, writing, lecture stuff. There's logical, like you just kind of turn things into ABC. Visual, images, diagrams, videos. Auditory number four, which would be sound and music, and then five is the physical slash kinesthetic, which is the touch. Right. So you have five different ways of five different, um, I guess, languages in our head where we understand stuff. So like stuff comes in, and then we trend like you know wh wherever it's from, and we translate it into what we're used to. Mm -hmm. So like you can give me all the words in the world, and you can say okay, do it this, this, and this. I will translate that because I'm a visual learner as well. 
I will translate that into a, a visual image or kind of a little narrative in my head yeah. instantly. And there will be things lost in that translation. Right. <laughs> I mean, like any translation, you know, you're, you're, uh, how's your, how's your Spanish? It's uh, fourth grade level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bastante bien. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Yo puedo hablar poco, tal vez poquito, pero yo entiendo suficiente a, a, a vivir aquí. Pero normalmente, mm, uh, like if I'm talking to adults, especially adults that have been here, like older people, mm-hmm. I, I got nothing, man. Like they talk so fast and mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm good with talking idiom. to kids. Oh yeah. yeah using so like, slang and stuff. I got no chance. Yeah. So like we're, the, we're taking information and in using either something rather than intuiting route. But in terms of what the information looks like in our heads, it looks like these these things, mm-hmm. right? So I don't have a lot of advice for that, but just kind of realizing that that's what's happening. So making, you know, as a um, as a teacher, if I read a bunch of words, I'm a visual learner, that kind of stuff, and just kind of knowing that uh, our brain would rather make a copy of a thing on its own than try to try to grasp the original thing. Okay. You know, like we're happy with the copy. Our brains are happy with the photocopy, like uh-huh. the, the the bad photocopy, because it's ours. Right. Like if if you have a, a a bunch of words or even a bunch of images, like it goes it goes the other way too. I think people assume that a lot of times, like okay, visual learners are the ones having the problem. I think a lot of sometimes, like if if a uh, a source of information has a lot of diagrams, and the the learner's like, oh, just give it to me in words, mm-hmm. and they'd rather you know translate it into words in their head. They'd rather just own that then try to grapple with the thing itself. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the point. So then how do you do it? Like, I guess the rule book needs to be, in a way the rule book needs to be multiple languages. So it needs to be in text because that's just the way it is. But like take, make use of those kind of sidebars, make use of the examples, make, you know, give pictures of the setup, give pictures, especially give pictures and give, uh, like, I don't know how you would give like, sense of flow like you know there's ways there's graphic design ways to kind of imitate movement yeah so like in that you know in those ways so like like you were saying before with the viral thing like a thing that like a little swirly that says okay mm-hmm. you know the turn the thing upside down i don't even know if that would work but like that kind of thing so that can go in like the sidebars i guess it's almost like you're you're making a teacher's edition of a book yeah so like when you're making a book the book is the book but then the teacher's edition of the book is the same thing but it has all this stuff on the side yep so like I, those are my favorite rule books, I guess, is the, the rule books with the stuff on the side and when it's effective. And because it's that stuff on the side, the, the sidebars, the examples, the pictures, the, um, the highlighted stuff. So like I mentioned before, it don't, you know, it's tough to highlight things in certain ways. You'll skip it. Like the best way to do that is put it in there in the text, just there, and then put it again highlighted on the sidebar, stuff like that. Yeah, one thing I noticed that Plat Hat Games is doing now is they put QR codes next to certain rules in the rule book. And so if you're really struggling with like, okay, I don't understand the wording, what does this mean exactly? You take your phone out, you you put that QR code in it real quick, and it pops up a video of a guy saying, here's how this works, and it's a video. So all of a sudden you go from words to the audio-visual, and so if you're not grasping how something works, well, now here's a guy to explain it, and like you're saying, talk talk to you in a different language, so to speak, and maybe you'll understand it that way. I think that's a really cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. Or even like, um, you know, put in like a little direction, and this will be more of a sidebar thing because, at the, you know, you, like a rule book, rule books having all words is also an assumption. Like when rule books get too cute, and they put like you know the the visuals and stuff inside the text. You're also breaking assumptions. Like the, the intentions are good, but w- 
we're okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're okay with the, the block attacks and then do stuff on the side. Um, so yeah, that that's a good example. Or like, uh, I don't know, like directing maybe in your sidebar, direct people, um, you know, like teaching tip, grab this piece mm-hmm. and put it over here, you know, kind of thing. If, if, if you're doing worker placement and you're teaching worker placement and that's the thing that is the most the central action in your game and especially if it does something a little bit different than what what it's used to so like some worker placement games you put a you put a piece there and only only that person can go and some worker placement games a lot of people mm-hmm. can go in the same space like just as an example yeah. like maybe even an, an example of okay here um and maybe that's not a rule book thing maybe that's more of a teaching thing i'm not sure you know like how that would fly in a rule book maybe because at the same time i want to respect the fact that there's limits in space and rule books cost money and the more pages the rule book is and the more you have to use color and blah blah. So I understand yeah. that there's a lot of pressure to make the rule book as thin as possible. So maybe that's more advice for the teacher. Um again, I'm not really sure. That's that is something up to you guys. You know, do that and then figure out, you know, the best way or account for that in your creation of the game. And then you guys figure out the best way to communicate it, whether it should be in the rule book or whether it should be just you know, teaching tips that on your website for teachers, for teachers of it. I don't know. Yeah. It's something Jamie Stegmaier has done in some of his rule books where he'll put in like a little designer's note and say, Hey, when you're playing this phase of the game, this part of the game, really think about this concept. Right. And so, cause when you're playing the game for the first time, you're looking at the, the thing, you're like, why, why should I do X or why should I do Y over there? Well, when you, when you can read in the rule book, Hey, you really want to think about X because in the end game, it's going to lead to some, a couple of things you should be aware of. Like, Oh, okay. And it kind of like helps your brain process why certain things are important and all, and all that kind of thing. And so I think that can help uh, as well. And another thing I've seen games do, I think is really cool is when you open the, the rule book, it'll say, start with like start, especially like deck builders, use this deck of cards for like open this package first, do this first, use this enemy as your first bad guy that you fight. Like it tells you very specifically like how to do the first game, and it's almost it's holding your hand through the first game, a, a mock up, first round, that kind of thing, and you're like just walking alongside the players and saying do this because this is going to help you understand the game. And instead of just like like you were saying earlier, instead of just dumping all that information on somebody, like really helping them walk through the processes to get familiar with it, and that way that second game can be so much better. I think that's another interesting thing to do that that helps people. Yeah, I think um, you remind me uh, another one of my friends. Uh, his name is The Brand. He runs the Portal Giving Podcast. Uh, a friend of mine up in here in CT. I mean, I'm living in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a great game teacher. And he teaches, he likes the game Vast, the Crystal Caverns. Yeah. I think you've had Patrick Leader on yeah, the show. Mm-hmm. Um, that game is such a crappy game as a teacher because right. it's five games, it's five games. Yep. in one. And so the best way that he figured out how to teach that game is to just do everybody's first turn. Mm-hmm. Just do it, yep. you know, and let the, the, the people who are, you know, even if you're like, you know, it probably, it's always better to like, okay, uh, you put that here as opposed to you moving the piece, like let them move the piece. Um, so then or you let them move the cube on the night or whatever it is. So then you tell them exactly what to do. And it's a little bit like you're kind of handholding whatever it is. But that after that, then people start to really kind of grok what's going on because they've really seen it. Right. And then you can start doing a little bit of the information dump afterwards. Yeah. So, you know, so th- like so I guess, you know, being nimble and getting taking those five kind of things that I was saying, the linguistic, the logical, the visual, the auditory, and the physical, kinesthetic. Um, and being as rules writers and t- game teachers kind of 
at least proficient in all those languages and being willing to kind of hop from one to the other. Like, and obviously like I'm not a logical thinker at all <laughs> as this podcast has proven my <laughs> more rambling podcast. Um, but so like that, I'm going to have a tr- little trouble with that, but I recognize that like I have a game group with a bunch of computer programmers. So I have to, yeah. <laughs> I have to do, make some accommodation for that. So like, um, you know, being proficient in that, 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 that part comes with practice. There's no real uh, advice for that. But I think kind of wrapping up, the main thing is um, we mess up rules mostly, especially if you're an intuitive learner and especially if you're doing the adaptive regression thing, if you're really hardcore powering down, bringing in that other concept I did, yeah. you're leaning on your assumptions. Right. And gamers lean on their assumptions and that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And if you're finding your gamers are leaping ahead, then, you know, anticipate that. Like, okay, if I'm putting this in my game, then a lot of my gamers are going to assume this or assume, you know, they're going to go from A to C. No, I want them to go to B. So if they're leaping to, to C and you want them to leap to B, then that's something where you have to pause, you know, put it, put it out, put an emphasis on it, all that kind of stuff. Like, I'm I really don't want to see that situation where it's like, OK, here's a rule, you know, read the rule better, read the rule better. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, let's let's chill out with that, please. <laughs> I do not want that person to be my college professor. <laughs> yeah. I don't want them to be my game teacher. <laughs> so, I mean, and that that's kind of the, the upshot of it. Like, you know, we love assumptions, like learn to love assumptions. Yeah. And I think as a designer, it's so just incredibly important to understand the audience that you're making your game for. Like right now I'm working on a very basic uh, combat game that's really for like more of a mass market kind of thing. Not like Hasbro mass market, but just kind of like people that maybe have only played a handful of games. And so they don't have these assumptions necessarily. And so I can't do all these deep kind of really interesting, cool things that you might could do for a person that's played a hundred different games. Like you have to really think about the audience that you're making the game for and then use these assumptions to your advantage. Right. And by, by using things that are kind of more in the norm and people are more familiar with and comfortable with. And I think it's just a, a matter of being intentional about your design process and knowing the who, like knowing your, your target customer and, and then design the game for that person. Yeah. And a lot of times they're not like if you ask that person or oh, what do you know, they're mm-hmm. not going to know. Oh, right. You know, yeah, it, you couldn't just, like write it, it down. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's all just kind of in there. Like you have like as, as yeah. a game teacher and as a game designer, you have to know what mm-hmm. some of those assumptions could be, be more conscious about it because your people who are playing those games aren't going to know what they know. Right. Like that's kind of the whole point of the unconscious and, you know, things being under there. And like, so like, you know, but they talk about, um, intuitive being like, you know, getting inspirations. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it came out of nowhere. It didn't come out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> it just came out of deep down. Yeah. So I have to be proficient in that as well. Like, okay, what do people know? And, you know, just kind of go from there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jason, any, anything else, man, any other stuff to go along? I mean, this is a lot of information, but do you have anything, anything else that kind of goes along with this? Yeah. I mean, just, you know, that in your original question, what is a learning style? Like, I mean, there's, we just spent a whole podcast talking about what learning styles are. Just know that there are multiple learning styles and they're not um, like that whole banking 
depositing, yeah. you know, stuff into the, the gamers. Like you're not like gamers aren't receptacles. Like we're real people. We go through real stuff. Uh, we come at eight thirty or ten thirty at night after a hard day of work, and we just want to turn our brains off, or we learn in a certain way. We don't learn. You know, we're not gonna receive every single rule. And please don't, um, you know, rule shame me for not yeah. <laughs> not reading every rule or whatever it is. Uh, just, you know, if we can kind of make ourselves a lot more proficient in the different ways in which we ingest information, then I think that we've accomplished the goal. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I've written a lot of stuff down. Thanks for coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We're going to talk about board games and therapy and some different things you've learned as, uh, as far as being a psychotherapist and using games in therapy situations. Another thing I have no idea about. So I'm excited to learn uh, just some things you've, you've had experience with. And so, yeah, cool. Jason, really appreciate you coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on. All right. Thanks a lot, buddy. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so um, if you're interested in more of my own content as a game, I'm not just like a psychotherapist and stuff. I, I really uh, try to do a lot in the game community. I'm also a podcaster. Uh, as Gabe said, my podcast is called Every Night is Game Night. Uh, it is a podcast about cooperative and strategy games, you know, the games that we really love to play. Uh, they We have a following in the solo guild, but uh, the, among solo players, but it's for everybody. We talk about, you know, first Martians and all that kind of stuff. We interview a lot of different uh, people. Uh, so really, you know, check us out. I'm also a blogger on BoardGamersAnonymous.com, which is on the Dice Tower Network. Uh, I write opinion pieces and I write reviews, a lot of reviews. You know, and uh, and you can also contact me if you really feel like following up on these conversations. I am at engn underscore podcast on Twitter and lurking in the Solo Games Facebook Guild and all over BGG. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?